I like it that we're learning that song. It's a good way to even remind us about what the Bible is actually all about. Ultimately, he is the true and better David, true and better Moses. You get the idea. It's good biblical theology in song. We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today, and so throughout the time when we're studying God's Word, I think it's an appropriate time to reflect upon God's goodness, to consider His mercy shown to you, and to have your heart prepared to eat and drink in remembrance of Him, our great and faithful Savior. Pray with me one more time if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to gather and to be able to hear others' voices as well as our own regarding things that are true and regarding things that are, are memorable and things that will matter forever. Help us now as we seek to study your words so that we would know you better and that we would be more impressed with your greatness and your mercy shown to us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So, if I were to talk with you this morning about priests, I wonder how you would respond when it comes to, how would you feel about that? Today we're going to talk about priests. Well, I imagine some of you would not have altogether positive feelings. And I think that's with some pretty good reason. Um, in the news over the last, oh, more recent days, there's a lot of scandals with the Roman Catholic priesthood and all kinds of corruption and things happening. And so some of you are thinking, I don't want to talk about priests because that just sounds like bad news. Be reasonable. Some of you have negative feelings if I say, today we're going to talk about priests because you're a Protestant. Uh, most of us here are. And you say, uh, I don't like to think about priests because I think about the Roman Catholic priesthood and they promote the Council of Trent... And the Council of Trent officially condemns the assurance-giving gospel. Why would I want to talk about priests? Uh, some of you maybe would say, I don't want to talk about priests. That gives me negative feelings because priests assume guilt. There's no reason to have a priest if there's no guiltiness. Because priests assume something is wrong with your relationship with God. Priests assume somehow God is not pleased with you as you are. And that rubs probably, if we're honest, all of us the wrong way because we do want to think that everything is just fine and I don't need any help and God is happy with whatever I do. I suppose the list could go on and on, but you get the idea. When we hear priest, it's pretty common to not have positive feelings, at least among us in this room. Guess we're going to talk about today. <laughs> it's kind of a giveaway. Today we're going to talk about priests and the significance of priests, the importance of priests, because everybody needs a priest, because none of us are in a good relationship with God on our own. We'll talk about that. Uh, not only that, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. He always lives as a priest, the Bible says, to make intercession on our behalf. He's a faithful priest. And if we, if we don't like priests, we won't like Jesus. So I'm here to help. Okay. Uh, even the Old Testament priesthood. And you might say, I don't like the, uh, I don't like priests because that's just old covenant stuff. Yeah. But even the Old Testament priesthood, which is what we're going to talk about today, is designed by God before it ever even started to lead us to the ultimate high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think we'll have a pretty good time together talking about considering the Old Testament priesthood, even as we are as Christians. So if you have a Bible, you can find the book of Exodus. And in 
Exodus, we're going to be looking at the priesthood. And so it's going to be Exodus 28, 29, 30, and 31. So we're just surveying. We won't capture every single word. Remember, I think we're in about week 15 or 14 in this series that was going to be four weeks. So I'm trying to do a survey, but you can only go so fast. So last week in Exodus, we looked at the tabernacle. It means tent. It's an official, unique dwelling of God for the people of God so that they would know and be reminded that he's with them in the wilderness. They were freed out of slavery in Egypt, and now they're on their way to the promised land. And so the tabernacle is there. We looked at that last week. And matching or going with the tabernacle would be the priesthood. And so we're going to see the the, the launching of the old covenant priesthood, if you will. The book of Exodus is about exiting. It's about leaving Egypt and oppression, being redeemed by God, and now being brought to the promised land. But now we're talking about this matter of priesthood, and we'll look at some of the details. And my plan today is, as we work our way through Exodus 28, 29, 30, 31, what we'll do is pause now and then to, to ask pertinent questions. Just a good way to learn. It's a good way to learn how this relates to Christ and how it relates to us as Christians. So now and then, I don't know how many questions there will be, maybe 10 or so, we'll, we'll stop and say, what about this? What about that? Why is that significant? Why is it relevant? Let's go ahead and jump in right now, if you would, with me. Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. So he's speaking to Moses. God is speaking to Moses and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. Question number one. Why do they need priests? It's a pretty simple answer. They need priests because they don't have a positive relationship with God on their own. Uh, we, we've seen even in this relationship that God has, has with Israel, it's a, it's a covenantal relationship. That means it's formal. It means there are obligations. It, it goes well for you if you keep your side of the covenant. It goes poorly for you if you break your commitment in this covenantal relationship. Um, remember, marriage is a covenantal relationship, and so it's positive, but it could be negative if you don't keep your, your vows, if you will. We all understand this. Well, the people of Israel have sworn that they would obey. We saw it in Exodus 24 when it says in verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And everyone who's read much of the Bible at all, even if you're a brand new Christian, you're like, <coughs> right? But it's not really very funny. They're going to violate their end of the covenant, if you will, over and over and over again, they need priests because they're going to violate the treaty. They're going to violate the agreement. But not only that, why Why priests? Well, as I mentioned earlier, because Israel, Israelite or not, it's my opportunity to say everybody needs a priest. You might not think you need a priest, but you need a priest according to the Bible because Psalm 14, let's say, Romans chapter 3, let's say. No one does good, no, not one. Hmm. Well, if that's true in God's eyes, oh yes, there's relative good. We're not as bad as we could be, but none of us have loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves as God requires, ever. And so we too need priests. So I'm intrigued by this. I don't need these kinds of priests because I'm not these people at this time, but it already has my interest. It also has my interest because 
we might, we might grumble and complain and say, I don't think you should have to have priests. Well, how about God graciously provides priests for these people instead of just giving them judgment? It's actually an accommodation. It's actually an extend, uh, him extending his grace and mercy to them. So sometimes we ask the wrong question. Well, let's keep moving. And, and as we move through this, look for concepts like holiness, consecration. Look at the details. Look at the beauty. Look for judgment. Look for representation. Just be on the lookout for those things in verse 2. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make a breast piece, an ephod, this sleeveless linen garment, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it will be joined together and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth as a jeweler engraved signets. So shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree and you shall Set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Maybe now down to verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. Then let's drop down for the sake of time to verse 21. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. How about verse 29? So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Verse 30, and in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord and thus shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord Regularly. Maybe we should stop. Ask a question or two. Why, why, why is it decorated? Why are these guys decorated the way they are? Why all of the colors? Why all of the ornaments? Why all of it being so fancy? Well, it matches the tabernacle to start. <laughs> a lot of symbolism. Secondly, Royalty, things are expensive, the purple and the blue. It's, it's representing God, right? The tabernacle represents the unique presence of God. And now, even in the text, God refers to the priests as his priests. But in a different conversation, the people could say they're, they're priests, right? Because priests function as mediators. 
And so they're to be reminded that God is our God and God is our king and his unique dwelling in the temple and he's provided priests so we can have a good relationship with him. And while we're wandering in the wilderness and things don't seem to be right, we can be reminded that God is uniquely with us and God has made unique provisions and he's even made the unique provision of the priesthood. Also, when we consider all of the ornate details, it's meant to remind Israel not only that do they have God, the one true and living God, not like the gods of the nations on their side, but also to say, this is different. This is holy. Holy means distinct. It means different. Now, it's enough the same so that people can get it. They can get a tent and a dwelling. They can get sacrifices because other nations would do sacrifices to their deities. There are certain things that are enough alike so that they can understand this whole thing. But it's really, really different. Distinct. Special. Different even from the nations. And so, it draws us in. These Individuals have a unique role. They're described as glorious, weighty, significant. It's not casual to be a priest representing the people and representing God. And so we have words like holy. We have words like glory. In verse 2, glory and for beauty. Reflecting something about God's greatness. Representing something about God's beauty and significance. Later on in verse 40, for glory and beauty. It's a holy office. It means it's a special office. It's unique. Unique among the Israelites, but even unique among the nations. It's, it, it's, it captures your attention. It's got gravitas, we might say. That, that's the idea of glory. Significance. God is with them in a special way. It's to be made with skillful workers, paying attention, quality, purity. But also we saw judgment. That word came up again and again, at least the concept did, and the word came up. Because the priesthood and the sacrifices remind you that God cares about people and how they act. And when there's sin, there's judgment. It's a reminder of that. Priests remind us that things aren't okay with us as we are. And so we have an emphasis on this. Even we also have an emphasis on representation. I hope you I hope you caught that. If you didn't, back in verse nine, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Why would they need the names, the twelve tribes, on their priestly garments, on their uniform, if you will? Because they represent, right? They're going in on behalf of the people, representing the people to God. And from God. Verse 29, the breast piece of judgment on his heart. To to bring them to regular remembrance. To bring them, yeah, those they represent. This becomes huge in the Bible. Yes, the New Testament. It's so much about representation. Right? The just for the unjust. 
That famous passage in Mark chapter 10, I think it's in verse 45. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a what? As a ransom for many. Oh, in place of. And so already I'm reading this and I understand. They would have understood. We need priests because things aren't okay with us as we are. Well, we can understand the same concept. We need a priest because things aren't okay with us the way we are. And so ultimately, this is looking forward to Christ. And we'll connect more dots along the way, but it's pretty straightforward. I hope you're seeing that come up again and again. Verse 31 then says, let's keep going. You shall make the robe on the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it and with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear on its hem. You shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. So it's ornate, fancy, expensive, beautiful. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, serves, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy places before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. It's all pretty serious. Well, it's a serious thing to to deal with God who you're not okay with in and of yourself. And so all of these special measures are made to help us re- realize that, that, that Aaron's not dealing with a peer, a fellow sinner, or even a fellow human being. And it would be one thing if he were perfectly obedient and good, inherently good in and of himself, but he's not. So God is making accommodation. So when you come, you come a special way. You come clothed a certain way. You come not on your terms, following your truth, we would say, you, you, you come on my terms. You don't follow your heart. You come on my terms and they're very strict. And as a matter of fact, if you don't come on my terms, you're going to get what you deserve. You're going to die. See, we get it wrong. We think, well, no one deserves to die. No, actually everyone deserves to die if the wages of sin is death. So God is graciously accommodating, but you'd better come on my terms. Interesting. Even the bells, It doesn't tell us exactly why. Some commentators think it's because you need to be respectful when you're coming into the presence of royalty. And so if you don't have a human, a person making the announcement, okay, it's okay to come in now, you're going to greet the king. At least the bells would, 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 would indicate you're coming, you're on your way. Now, as if God needs bells. So many of these things, I mean, none of, God doesn't need any of these things. It's for them. But that might be why they're wearing the bells. And I want you to remember the bells for later because it actually will be pertinent for us as Christians. Other commentators, and it's not in contradiction, it's a complimentary take on this, would be the bells also would tell the people who are outside of the tent that things are still okay. Right? Our representative is in the presence of God's unique dwelling and he's there on our behalf. It would be encouraging. Things are going well. God has not struck Aaron dead. This is, this is joyous because accommodation is made and God is accepting him. I would have wanted to hear the bells. Remember the bells for later, if you would. Let's see. How about if we pick it up now? 
with the sacrifices. I think we've gotten the idea regarding the, the garments, but now let's talk about the sacrifices. Let's go to Exodus 29.10. Exodus 29.10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, before the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take a part of the blood of the bull, and shall take part of the blood of the bull, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the bull you shall pour out at the, of the blood, excuse me, you shall pour out at the base of the altar, and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the blood, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar, but the flesh of the bull, and its skin, and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. I'm not going to take the time to go to Hebrews that relates that to Christ, because we might be here all day. But but, but let's move to verse 15. Because this is similar. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. So we've seen this kind of thing already. Notice it again. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with the pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Then verse 19, get this. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall kill, excuse me, shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. So here it is again. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. I'm going to put my finger there for a second. You think, what? I think he's Probably just, it's symbolic of the, some, some important parts of your body. So it's either this or you get baptized in blood, <laughs> right? You're hearing, you're working, you're walking. You need this to be consecrated unto the Lord. You need bloodshed for you. Seems to be the idea. And throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons garments with him. And he and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons garments with them. Different, unique, set apart. Blood has been shed on their behalf. They've been anointed, which is used so often for when you commission someone to do something special. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. Well, they're anointed special for a unique kind of office is what's going on here. My question for you here is, why the laying on of the hands? Goes back to representation again. Goes back to transference again. The animal represents us. We should be dying for our own guilt. And God has graciously provided a substitute so that we don't have to have our own blood shed. Surely that's why they lay their hands on the animal. Symbolizing identification, substitution, sin offering. 
Then 35 says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement. There it is again, for it. And shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning. And the other, la- the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. How about verse 42? It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Next question. It's a question you've hopefully been asking or thinking about or maybe you're just so used to the Bible you don't think about the obvious questions. Why all the blood? Why all the death? Why does this have to keep happening? How about that? Twice a day. Think about for how many days. Think about how many animals that would be. This is a ton of blood. This is a ton of death. Death, death, death. Why? Well, we know the inspired answer to the question. So I'll just quote the Bible. Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, if you were God, and we all praise God that you're not, I know people in my family praise God that I'm not, if you were God and you created by speaking things into being, maybe you would do it differently. But from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, I just quoted the book of Hebrews, which is explaining these things. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Without there being the shedding of blood. In in other words, without atonement, that word comes up often. It's already come up at least a couple of times. Without atonement, shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And we won't do a deep dive study of it. But if we were to study that in the rest of the Bible, atonement is when blood is offered as a substitute. God is not pleased. God is angry with sinners every day, the Bible says. So how are we going to make God happy? How are we going to atone his judgment? How are we going to atone his wrath? That's the concept. Atonement assumes judgment and anger. So there's going to be the shedding of blood because God has provided a gracious way of escape. So atonement brings forgiveness. So if you want to be forgiven your sins... You need atonement. You need Jesus to provide what we call in Christianity a substitutionary atonement in place of, and if you want to get even more fancy about this, this is why the Bible uses words like propitiation. means satisfy. God's wrath is propitiated. It is atoned. He's satisfied through substitution. Thankfully. Thankfully. Once again, if you're saying, I don't like all this stuff. Why does there have to be death? In a sense, you're asking the wrong question. If God just gave people what they deserved, there would be no laying the hands on the head. There would be no 
lambs provided? I say, let's ask the right question. God, how could you be so kind and gracious to provide a way of escape ultimately through Christ? I'm so thankful for that. Hebrews 9.22 is the passage I just quoted, by the way, and it really helps you to understand. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. We already saw atonement in verse 36. We saw it in verse 37. If we look ahead to chapter 30, verse 10, make atonement. 30.15, make atonement. 30.16, make atonement. God has provided a way for there to be atonement, and that's why we praise God even as Christians. Jesus is the spotless lamb. Now, next question it would be, why, why do they have to keep doing it though? Why every day? Why twice a day? Why, why, why does this have to keep going? Well, duh, right? They keep sinning. They, they, they keep sinning. It also has to keep going because the priests keep dying. We may not get to the actual verses, but even in this prescription, it talks about when Aaron dies, you give his priestly garments to the next generation. He's going to die. That's why Hebrews chapter 7 is so helpful. You can go ahead and turn to Hebrews 7 if you'd like. We'll be in Hebrews 7. We'll be in Hebrews 4. Putting the pieces together. We're reading the book of Exodus, trying to understand it in its context, but we're also trying to understand it as Christians. The reason we started all of this is so that we would understand the whole Bible better and because the New Testament assumes that you're at least well aware of the Exodus. So how about Hebrews chapter 7? This might be the one of the greatest things you'll hear all day. I don't want to say the greatest. We're going to save that for the end. 723 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's a hint that there's a problem. That's a hint that we need somebody better to be a priest. 24 says, but he, talking about whom? About Jesus. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he, unlike all the others, because he, Jesus, continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Gotta love that. Those who draw near to him, think tabernacle talk, think priest talk, when they draw near to God as the high priest. Who, who, uh, those who draw near to God through him, since he all, oh, this is so good. He always lives to make intercession for them. This is all set up on purpose for in the fullness of time for Jesus to walk in the door and say, I'm here. I've what, I am who you've been waiting for. It's awesome. It makes me like studying Exodus more. Knowing the punchline. So we've got tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifice. Maybe on a, on a 30,000 foot level, you, you, you'll still say, well, why, why all of this? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. But notice verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel. 
And I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, that, that's, that's the huge positive. I'm doing all of these things so that, that, that they'll know, so that they'll have confidence that I don't hold their sins against, against them. I provide a way of escape. See, if you were an Old Testament Israelite and thinking clearly, notice the qualifier, because they don't always, and you, and you were thinking clearly with all of this happening with the tabernacle and all of this happening with the priesthood, you would be thrilled. You would be rejoicing. You would be utterly happy. This tells us that God, Yahweh, the self-existent one, not like the gods we make with our own hands or like the Egyptians did, He's with us. You would have loved this at your best moments. And I'm encouraging you to love it in the sense that you can understand them and you can say, you know what, we, we know how this actually unfolds. We can appreciate it even more. Okay. Now for some incense. How about verse chapter 30, verse 1? You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood, and then the details come. How about if we go down to verse 7? And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. How about verse 9? You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So specifics. But there now we have incense. I won't say a lot about it other than to say, do you think God needed the incense? Newsflash, God doesn't have a nose. I know the Bible says he has a nose, but he doesn't have a nose. And I'm not a false teacher. I'm a Christian teaching the Bible. I believe it's all true, but the Bible uses figures of speech. We have it on good authority. John chapter 4, Jesus says God is a spirit. But it sure would have been encouraging to the people. God sanctioned this. God commanded this. As long as we do things the way God laid out, He's happy. He's pleased with us. How encouraging that would have been. It's also interesting if we cross-reference to the book of Revelation. We won't take the time to actually go there. But in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, overlap, synonyms, incense is used to represent the prayers of the people. It's kind of a cool way to think about it. I, I talk to this God. How, how, can I, how, how can I be assured that He hears me? Well, you do what you're supposed to do in the tabernacle. You do what you're supposed to do when it comes to the covenant. You do what you're supposed to do when it comes to the priesthood. And if in Exodus it's designed to do this, I don't know for sure, but I do know what Revelation says. And as we talk to this God, it's like incense. You need a visual? There's the visual. Interesting. Okay, we'd better keep moving. Verse 17 says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, and with it a stand of bronze for washing. And he talks about the ceremonial cleansing that they have to go through. Then if we go down to verse 20 at the end, So that they may not die. So again, you come to me, 
uniquely as sinners, I'm going to make accommodation, but there's symbolic cleansing, washing here. How about 21? They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It's a good verse to take out of context when you're training your children. (laughs) Couldn't resist. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. I think what we can do, at least for now, is have the takeaway be, you come to me uniquely, specially, not casually. Provision has to be made. You need to be distinct. You need to be holy. You need to be different. You need to be set apart. Because you're not just dealing with anybody here. Why all the formality? It's pretty amazing God's making this accommodation to begin with. It's also interesting to to know that they couldn't become clean enough. They, they, They couldn't be ornate enough. I mean, it's seven days of preparation to even have this thing happen. I'm not one to find hidden significance in numbers all of the time, but I do know in the Bible, often seven represents fullness, completion. It's taken care of. But I, I, I can't help myself but to think about these guys who are cleaning their hands and their feet and putting on the special clothing and doing everything just so, incense included. It's still God being merciful and accommodating. It still has to be based upon one who would come later who actually is perfectly pure without any kind of blemish. It has to be that way. Well, how about chapter 31? In verse 31, verse 11, let's highlight that. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Again, strictness because God is righteous, because God is not one of us. He's not a peer. Later on in the book of Numbers, we'll see two in Aaron's family, Nadab and Abihu. Numbers chapter 3, verse 4, they're going to get creative. They went to a worship seminar in Nashville and uh, they learned how to offer creative worship and follow their hearts. <laughs> and God kills them. Nadab and Abihu, they're famous in the Bible, actually. We learned about them at the very beginning, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verse 4, they die because they didn't follow the instructions. God is serious about things. He has our attention. Then he covers Sabbath in verse 12. Seems like it comes out of nowhere. Verse 13, you shall, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, punishable by death to not keep them. Well, we've already covered Sabbath in chapter 20 when we were in chapter 20. I won't re- reiterate all of that. But it does beg the question, why, why is it here? Well, be, well, it's here because it was important. Um, you're going to be different from all the nations because you're going to be like me in a sense because it's six days and then rest and you're going to do the same thing six days and then rest. So you're going to be, you're going to be set apart different from all the other nations. Surely that's why, but maybe it's here because, boy, the tabernacle is really important and we've got to build the tabernacle and we've got to work hard as unto the Lord and we have to have skillful craftsmen and we've got to do all of this just so. Maybe it's here for that reason. However this goes down, you're going to keep the Sabbath. You're going to rest. 
Remember, you're to be different from all the other nations. You're going to rest because that will have you stand out. If you would, if you would, please turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to end on this. And then celebrate the Lord's Supper. Which is tied to the Exodus. Because he's the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. Communion assumes that we've read the book of Exodus. It also assumes we've read the book of Exodus because we have a faithful high priest who represents us. Oh, I think, I don't, I hate to rate Bible verses, but this might be the best that we're going to hear today. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we, he's talking to new covenant believers, the temple is still operating, so tabernacle, then it becomes the temple. It's still operating when the book of Hebrews is written and Christians are being persecuted and Christians are being exiled from their families for believing the truth about Jesus and they're being tempted to maybe go back to Judaism, to go back to these things, which would not be good. It would not be right. They were to serve for a certain purpose in a certain time, but let's keep going. Since then we have a great high priest. Think better. Think ultimate. A great high priest who has passed through, not in the tabernacle, right? Not going from one place of the tabernacle, and now we're going to go into the Holy of Holies. No, he's using that kind of imagery. But he's passed through the heavens. So now this is cosmic tabernacle. This is grand. This is the ultimate kind of thing. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, better than Aaron, right? Better than Aaron's sons. The Son of God. Since that's happened, let us hold fast our confession, right? Hold fast. Don't go back. Continue to trust in Christ. He's so much grander. He's so much greater. That was the shadow. He's the substance. Then in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So notice the contrast. They, 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 they have the priesthood and it's still functioning. It's meant to have ended with the coming of the new covenant. Yes, it was good, but it wasn't to be forever. These people knew they needed a priest. Same people know they need priests. But he's saying, look, you, you, you do have a priest, but your priest is cosmically better. Your, your, your priest is the priest. And not only that, you need somebody to encourage you because your family's written you off. You need someone to encourage you because you lost your job because you're a follower of Jesus. You know what? Just know that he can sympathize. He's not only your great official Lord Jesus high priest, he understands. He's sympathetic and compassionate without sin. Oh, that causes us encouragement because all of those other priests have sin because they keep having funerals for them. But our great high priest is without sin. Let's keep going. And it, it, it just keeps building and it's wonderful. Verse 16 then says, 
Here, here's the so what, here's the therefore. Let us then, because of that, let us then with confidence, some translations are going to say boldly. That's, that's the good right idea. With confidence, with boldness. Draw near to the throne of grace where God is. How about this? Because of who our priest is, we draw near boldly. And I'm not saying we don't respect God. We do. But we draw near boldly with confidence. How about without bells? No disrespect. But because I'm in Christ, I'm seen as sinless. I don't need the formality of the bells. I just run in. If you're a Christian, you just go in boldly with confidence. You just run into his throne room. That's the difference between former relationship, the the shadowy goodness, and the ultimate substance greatness. Let us then with boldness, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. How do you get to the throne of grace? How do you get to God's throne if you're a sinner? You don't. Hold on. In the tabernacle, there actually was a way. You had to be a priest. Guess what? In the book of Revelation, I think at least three times, Christians are said to have been made a kingdom of priests. Who gets to go to God's throne where there's been sin? Only priests? Yeah, guess what? If you're a Christian, you're a priest. A perfect priest, a sinless priest. And you say, you don't know me. Yeah, I do. Because you're united to Christ by faith, he's made you a priest. Priestly status, perfect priestly status. No bells. You go in as if you were him. (sighs) Amazing that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's made us priests. Therefore, I don't need any priest except the ultimate priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, I'm a priest. It means direct access to God with boldness. If you need something more than that, I got nothing for you. This is a cherished reality, a cherished doctrine of Christianity and has been through the ages. The priesthood of all believers. It's pretty amazing. And it's not because we're great. It's because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Absolutely amazing. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our study in the book of Exodus. Thank you for the details, even though we don't understand all of them. And sometimes if we're honest, we we tire of some of them. Um, may, May we continue to learn. 
Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for providing this perfect canvas in redemptive history for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. The one who is our perfect priest who always lives to make intercession on our behalf. And thank you that we can, in fact, men and women, boys and girls, sinners of all different types, know that we've been made a kingdom of priests because of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can come to you and that you are better than any other kind of priest that anyone else could ever offer us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.